Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Something from the Cellar. A chance for us to revisit some of our vintage conversations that reside in the White Wine Question Time Cellar with almost 300 episodes in our back catalogue to choose from. And in this episode, we're going back to talk with three guests who've had glittering careers in show business but also share one common theme. They all happen to be qualified doctors too. First up is one of Britain's most loved TV medics, Dr. Alex George, former A&E doctor, former Love Island contestant and author, and the UK's youth mental health ambassador as of 2021. Dr. Alex has many hats and he wears them well, from spreading awareness of mental health on platforms like OnlyFans, to asking for a meeting with the Prime Minister and insisting that he does more to advocate for mental well-being. Dr. Alex reminds us you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain from being fearless and taking the road less travelled. I launched the campaign on the 2nd of January um, with a post on Instagram and literally, I think, 10 days later, um, number 10 Downing Street calling me being like, let's have a meeting. And then the cabinet meetings, this kind of stuff. And obviously, you never expect to go to number 10 and be like, right, you know, you're going to be in this role. We want you to come and work with the, you know, charity sector, work with the NHS sector, work with the government sector and education and look at what we can improve. You just don't think that's ever going to happen, do you? It's it's kind of, it's wild. It's wild. Your post would end up being put on the Prime Minister's desk and he then decides to do something about it. I mean, just that very sentence that you just sort of, you know, very casually flew out there of your mouth because that, so, you know, I, I wanted to ask the prime minister uh, to do more. And it's like that, that you do realise that's not normal, Alex, don't you? <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I, I don't think I'm particularly normal anyway. It's fine. <laughs> I, I, I've accepted that. I think we're none of us are, are we? I just have this big, you know, I have this, um, I have this, I've had this really big thing since I was really little that I have, I have a fear, actually. I have a fear that I don't want to look back on my life and think that I didn't live it. I didn't. I mean, this has gone very deep very quickly, but it was a real fear of mine. It, it's driven me. I don't know where it really comes from, but I don't want to regret in my life that I didn't go for things. And I think people are so afraid to fail so much that it prevents them from actually living their lives. And and, and I, I have a saying that, you know, I, 
I, I repeat this to myself all the time to kind of make sure I don't be afraid, you know, that you learn far more from your failures than your successes. And, I, and that's what, you know, and again, we talk about, I know we'll talk about the book, Better Day, but that's the whole, that's a big part of the premise of that, you know, don't be afraid to learn, to fail, to grow and all that kind of stuff. And just why not? So what was the worst that could happen? I don't go and see the prime minister. It doesn't happen, but we managed to still raise loads of awareness around mental health. But so much, so much of what you've done has involved great risk. Like, I mean, for example, I know you didn't apply to Love Island, but when they came knocking on your door and they saw you on Bumble, a colleague egged you on and you said yes. Now, that, now that is, that's a risk, right? By, going, by putting yourself through med school, you would have accrued huge student debt. You would still be clearing that down, I would imagine, at that stage in your career. It could have ruined you as a, in terms of your medical career, and yet you still decided to do it anyway. It was the road less travelled and the last place in the world you ever expected to find a doctor. <laughs> Yeah, I I think um, it took. I actually spent a long time thinking about it. It sounds like because you'd imagine you just go, oh, yeah, I'll do it in the next week on the show. It's a long time before there was. A, trust me, there was a lot of back and forth. I also knew that you know I knew that I wasn't going to do anything that got me in a situation I couldn't practice. I mean, I, actually, it was a conversation with a, one of my consultants that kind of helped me make the decision. And um, it was something that he said to me. We were in A and E actually. We were sat in the doctor's um, where we sit and type and do our notes. And he said, "Come here." He said, look out there in that waiting room. He says, he said, everyone out there, they all have relationships, they're all family, they have gay girlfriends, they break up, they do whatever. They also, lots of those will go home, they have sex, they have, they have, they're real people. In here, we're real people as well. You know, you, you're no different to anyone else. As long as you carry yourself, you know, uh, you know, and you're, you're professional in terms of respecting the values and moral codes of being a doctor, that you're respectful of the people around you, that why shouldn't you go on the show? And that was, that for me, genuinely was, and I was like, do you know what? He's right. Why not? Why can't a doctor be on a dating show? Why does it matter? It shouldn't matter. No, I mean, it's great. But, but you know, you'd already identified, yeah. you'd done a risk assessment. It was risky, especially in today's culture of, of cancelling people. I know that you feel very strongly about this, as do I. I think we share the same view, which is people have to be allowed to make mistakes, repair those mistakes and learn from them. Otherwise, how do we evolve? But equally... Even if you went on there and carried yourself well, you could have found yourself caught up in somebody else's cancellation nightmare that could have tarnished you. True. But I also do think, um, I don't think anyone actually truly, there's only a few people that have actually ever truly been cancelled. And most of the time when you see people getting inverted commas cancelled, they often come back even stronger than they were before. And I think there is a huge, and thankfully, I mean, Kate, again, we've, I know that you you share this view. You know, we, we have to move past the cancel culture. And I think, you know, there's a huge backlash at the moment against that. People are sick of it, aren't they? Um, no, I, I, I completely agree with you. And I think that, you know, uh, so much of my youth was spent learning by my mistakes. And, and that, you know, that you learn from your mistakes. They are life lessons. And actually, if we stopped calling them mistakes and started thinking of them as a small slice of life education, we might... We might frame it all differently. I don't know. But I just worry for young people, especially when everything that they do has some kind of digital footprint. So, so much of, of what you do is recorded now in a way that it never was when I was a kid yeah. and certainly was probably way less so when you were. I know I've yeah. got a few years on you, sadly. Well, I think I think the point, the thing that I'm afraid of, to be honest, is that if you look at ignorance and ignorance is often the breeding ground for things like racism, sexism, uh, you know, all the kind of bullying and bad things that come from, from, from ignorance. 
cancel culture doesn't tackle that it breeds mm-hmm. it because if you don't allow people to say Do you know what i made a mistake there i'm sorry and pay the price for, for being sorry and then be allowed to you know improve and carry on then you're going to breed ignorance people won't ask mm-hmm. questions people it will it will suppress that and actually that's a more dangerous environment for young people to grow in it's really important that young people as they grow up they learn to be accountable and say Do you know what i you know your playground you kicked a ball and you hit the other kid in the head and, and you shouldn't have done it you go and say look Do you know what? i'm sorry i shouldn't have done that i shouldn't have been aggressive with that ball hitting the head i am really sorry what, what should we do like forevermore say that kid is a bad mm-hmm. child that person that child for the rest of his life is a bad child you never be allowed to play football again or be in the playground no we go thank you for saying sorry it's good you said sorry to that child be very careful in what you're doing this is what you need to learn from it and then move on yeah well said so listen when else have you taken a path less traveled and what have been the outcomes i think the other one for me and i, and I, and I say this because i think and i and i hope it relates to others who are dyslexic out there who, who have uh neuro neuro neurodiverse like my, myself um you know writing a writing a book to be honest is probably one of the things that i was like i'm like honestly when i wrote the first adult book i was like what am i doing like how am i doing this i you know this is this feels so wrong for me to be doing it because it's so out of my comfort zone it's something i've struggled with it's been something that's been a source of discomfort for me and i feel like in many ways you know people and there's lots there are other dyslexic authors who have done the same but actually going against and going do you know what i'm going to learn how to adapt and be able to do this and bring in support and other people that can help me with the writing to to still be able to do what what benny would think would be impossible when i grew up i thought there's no way on this planet i could ever mm. write a book I wouldn't want to, I couldn't do it, but you can do it. And I think, and I hope for anyone listening that, that is dyslexic as well, don't let these things stop you. Like you can be a doctor, you can be, you can be a lawyer, you can be whatever you want to be. You can write books. You, don't let it stop you. Just bring in the support you need to help you through it. You know, it's not always easy, but you can do it. I see it as a superpower because if you think about it this way, you know, our brains, you're not, you're not disadvantaged in a sense by being dyslexic. And I, I, and I mean this in sense of, life broad more broadly than say what we think about in writing because in many ways that you you just use your brain in different ways so you know the research has shown that those who are dyslexic use a lot of the part of their brain that's associated with creativity so sometimes things we think are a weakness realize what what strengths there might be in that the potential in that and actually if we all thought the same and all set came at things in the same way well, well, that's that's no good for anybody. We all, we everybody needs to have. Boring. Well, no, but everybody needs to have their own path in, don't they? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's yes, boring, but also yeah. unproductive, <laughs> un- unconstructive. Um, and you're right; it is a superpower and and a tool. And that takes me very nicely to my next question for you, Alex. Yeah. You're working uh, to help young people develop the tools that they need to deal with, the difficulties, the challenges, the tragedies and hardships that life can present. But I wonder if you would mind drilling down into your own experiences and sharing what tools you've had to call upon to get through some of your own biggest challenges and difficulties and how those tools have helped. And I thought maybe first and foremost, could we start with the professional you and the realities of life and death as an A&E doctor? Yeah, I mean... I find it fascinating that as Brits, we're pretty bad about uh, talking about 
death. We often avoid it. We pretend it doesn't happen. You know, and I'm not trying to be negative here, but we all actually, I think it's I, I'm actually going to say it's a real positive. Right. We all will die. Okay, and that means that the time that we have is special, it's finite, and that finite amount of time is beautiful. It makes moments that we have, whether that's a birth of a new child, whether that's something amazing you achieved, it makes it special because it's not infinite. You know, we don't know how long we have, and I think that is that is that is the amazing thing about about death and about life. I think with in A and E, I mean, I obviously have been kind of literally brought, you know, I guess my attention has been brought to death quite a lot, more so in the pandemic than ever. I think, you know, the number of people we saw passing away it was, it was horrific. I think more what was difficult in the pandemic was um, was the fact that we couldn't, when you're dying, you know, the dream is to have, you know, your family around you, your friends around you, to feel that sense of passing to be a moment, you know, the final moments to be in some ways special of your life. And the pandemic robbed people of that. It robbed it. And they also not only robbed them in their passing, but look at what happened, you know, for example, when my brother passed away, we were only allowed 12 people in the funeral. We all had to sit, sit two metres apart. You know, that, I cannot explain how, and, and other, I know a lot of people have shared the same experience, but how horrendous that is. Now we're diving back into our conversation with Adam Kay, doctor turned comedian turned best-selling author, done it all and he talks to us about the success of his tv series adaptation of his best-selling book this is going to hurt in which he's played by ben wishaw and the stigma that surrounds mental health certainly within the medical profession and how he uses comedy to trick people into listening and pricking their ears up to the awful truths of what it's really like to work within the nhs It's only in the last few years that medical schools have actually even started talking to doctors-to-be about how they will cope during the bad days. If you support someone who's had, you know, an an awful traumatic day, it it will cost a bit of money, you know, giving them the support. It might cost the organisation some money and giving them a week or two off. But that is the best possible investment in that person because they're much more likely to be able to continue to do their job. If there isn't that support, they will continue. They'll work for another week, month, year, but eventually it will accumulate and they will burn out or they'll realise they, they can't go on mm. any anymore. And, you know, most organisations realise this, but the NHS is, is slow to get it. It's, it's shocking, really, because it is a false economy. If nothing else, it stacks up as a bad, bad exercise in business, doesn't it? It really you know, does. It, it really just does. makes more sense to invest because the, what you recoup is of way more value to the business, and by business I mean the National Health Service, uh, that you're trying to, to support. It's just, yeah. yeah. And yet, I mean, I know that you try to show this in all its warts and awful glory uh, with the BBC drama, and, and you really did bring so much of that to life, the chaos, the confusion, the fact that a doctor is just a human being, that we've got to stop seeing the uniform before we see the human being that fills it. What was it like watching yourself being played uh, by an actor, by the brilliant Ben Whishaw, um, but also to have your husband executive producing it as well? <laughs> um, I mean, I was really, really proud of the TV show. Um, 
of all the cast, you know, Ben and Ambika, who played Shruti, I thought was absolutely phenomenal and a, a huge, great cast of giant talent and the and the talent off screen the you know our directors Lucy and Tom and all the producers and the sound and the design and the editing and um um and it's been it's been wonderful seeing so many of those departments um getting nominated and awarded you know various gongs in the last few weeks and months um it was it was a real privilege having the chance to write it for telly and I firmly centered it on that exactly what you were talking about the you know the the mental health because I thought if the hospitals aren't going to talk about it then I can get this into what ends up being 8 million homes and then that makes it an unavoidable talking point and um I thought Ben in particular I think he's the most phenomenal actor you know I I I didn't see him as playing me because the the version I wrote of my character was so you know, different to you know to make the the story work the way I wanted it to I had to had to turn him into something a bit uh, a bit more extreme and turn everything up. Um, cartoon it, him up. Uh, I don't think Ben. Yeah, but I don't think Ben can play a cartoon because he always find the truth and the heart and the real in what he does mm. but some of the some of the situations we made very extreme we made a lot of um the decisions that he uh, he made as a as a character really really bad ones with sort of with quite severe consequences um so he yes. ended up in front of the in front of the beak um about to you know potentially lose his job as as a result of it um um, but yeah, it was extraordinary to see such an amazing actor at work. And what's it like having my husband being my boss? Uh, okay. <laughs> I'm saying okay because he'll probably listen to this. <laughs> well, what I loved, because as alongside watching the drama, I was reading Undoctored. So I'm finding out kind of what happens next. James is a very... James was is, is punching big time in his career right so this is your husband he ran BBC Studios at an incredibly young age he's produced huge sat as an executive producer on huge shows like Great Game of Thrones but when you two met you were I mean not in that place you were living in a bedsit you were both unproven in your new you know, certainly in your new profession and look how far you two have come together only to end up having him execing your life story that's <laughs> that's quite a unique strain to put on any marriage <laughs> it's been it's been really really nice to be honest um we you know we were starting out in our respective careers at the at the at the same time and uh working mm. in the you know the most junior rungs of television as a as a writer or a producer it's not particularly glamorous you're scrabbling around for work and um um, we've hopefully supported each other along that journey. I mean, for the vast majority of the journey, uh, it was him supporting me financially uh, because he was a lot more successful than I was. Um, and now it's it's nice that we've you know we, we we've both found a bit of success in our in our different corners of um, of the of the media. A bit. And it's been yeah. It's been yeah. We've been a bit. We've, we've you been are very... a literary sensation. <laughs> we've been. I've. 
You are, and Game of Thrones was a game changer in television. So you're more than a little bit successful. I think that 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 bedsit that you found yourselves living in, uh, you've come an awful long way, metaphorically and on every other level, uh, from those days. And you seem to have, um, yeah, you seem to have climbed the mountainside together. Really, that's that's nice. That would be my observation. But obviously, I, I, what do I know? Which one's Richard and which one's Judy in this professional <laughs> marriage? <laughs> I think we're I think we're more um Giles and Mary from Gogglebox. <laughs> I love it. But the marriage has survived and um the drama is available on iPlayer for anybody that hasn't seen it, I would encourage you to do so. It's wonderful. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finally, a brain box, a funny guy, a qualified doctor, and a quiz master extraordinaire. It's the Cinnaman, Paul Sinner from The Chase. Here he tells us how a random opportunity to play at the gig of his dreams as a budding comedian while he was still at medical school went on to change his life forever. And he talks us through his own inimitable cure for heartbreak, which ended in, well, the most romantic of proposals. The whole environment at St George's Hospital Medical School allowed me to not just to come out as a gay man, but to come out in so many other ways in terms of developing a personality and confidence. And, and in many of my happiest years, many of my happiest moments rather, were spent in that, in that environment. And oddly enough, because you asked this, rather like the comedy store, I revisited it again because I recently did a, 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 a talk at the medical school. Well, there's a stage there that you named named after you now, isn't there? The Paul Sinner stage. Yes, and you, there is a stage, there, and you don't think because I was statistically one of the worst medical students that place had ever seen. You don't think that one day they're going to name something after you, uh, because because you became a success as a comedian. So it's quite, it's quite nice that they don't judge people necessarily by their academic record, but by the other things they've achieved as well. But that's what. I'm, what a remarkable transformation you underwent in so many ways under the roof at St George's. You know, like you said, the, the boy that arrived and the man that left were really quite remarkably different. Yeah, not necessarily happier, but different. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you did a um, lot. You discovered a lot. You, you, you tend to go at stuff very hard, don't you? So I imagine like when you gambled, you really gambled. I would imagine when you drink, you really drink. Um, have you been talking to my best friends, Kate? Because you seem to be very, you seem to be knowledgeable about my life in a way that I don't find typical of of, of an interviewer. You seem to know it all. Yes, I, I'm somebody that went at life very hard, and I think that was, if I'm being serious for a second, a sort of reflection of how 
the things that teenagers end up doing as adults because they never had any responsibility as a teenager and they're always a bit pampered. Uh, and so I think if I'd, done, if I'd got myself a Saturday job as a teenager, learnt to be uh, thrifty with my own money that I'd worked hard to earn, uh, had more responsibilities, knew a little bit more about life, maybe been drunk at 17 rather than waiting till 18, that, that sort of thing. But had a bit more preparation in real life before I went to medical school. I think sometimes the 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 freedom and liberty of being a student can be totally overwhelming if you haven't enjoyed any aspect of that previously. Yeah. And I think that's quite a common thing that, that, that a lot of students go through is that they react by going a bit wild. Well, you're like a hungry man at an all-you-can-eat buffet. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and then, of course, the quizzing came along um, and that kind of started to feed into the way that you approached everything, including your comedy. Um, and never more so than really when you made your debut at Edinburgh. Was it, would Edinburgh be a place that has a special kind of significance in terms of venues? I know you probably played multiple venues there, but the fringe I, itself. I, I have played multiple venues. Uh, and last year was my favourite venue. It's the basement of the Newtown Theatre in George Street. And because I was bringing music and uh, my favourite band is the Pet Shop Boys, the fact that this place had low ceilings and seemed like the perfect place to watch the Pet Shop Boys sort of, ener sort of energised me. It was a really, I can't recommend the venue highly enough. It's air-conditioned, it's not steam, steamily hot, great acoustics, low ceiling. And I've chosen to forego this year my perfect room to do something bigger. Because that had 200 seats and this year I'm going for 400 seats because I think if you don't get a chance to dream, when, when, when will you? I, I'm going for a 400 seater purely because I'd like to go for a big room one year in my life and this seems to be the right year to go about it. But the dream room was very much last year. Um, the Stand Comedy Club, who uh, have been operating stand-up comedy in Edinburgh for donkey's years now, have always treated me really, really well. Uh, fair financial deals, great support. And they're, they're, they're not a place as such. Well, there is a Stand Comedy Club. But they're more than that. They're an institution. They're an organisation. They're an ethos of treating acts fairly. Right. Uh, and the, the, I, I couldn't be where I am now without their, their help and support over the years. So that's a very, very special place. Very well. And, and Edinburgh is a magnificent city. But mm. I'll be honest with you, it's just as magnificent outside of the festival. In many in one way, it's more so because you can get tables at restaurants yeah. and... <laughs> Uh, but it, uh, the Edinburgh of, of the other 11 months of the year seems like an almost completely different city mm. and it's just, as far as I'm aware it's just as enjoyable yeah what about the place that you chose to propose to Oliver did that have great meaning and significance well again this is a slightly weird story in that I got dumped in 2015 uh, by boyfriend number one and that autumn I spent a night drinking with my cousin in Rome and we randomly roamed, roam, pardon the pun, that was undeliberate. Um, we randomly walked the streets of Rome. We, we suddenly found ourselves on a bridge over the River Tiber. And I looked at the view. I thought, my God, this would be a nice place to propose to someone one day. Um, and I never actually, you know, I'd just been dumped. I, the idea that that one person could ever be me doing the proposing hadn't even occurred to me. I just thought the view was lovely. Isn't this romantic? la di da di da I ended up on that bridge four years later proposing to Oliver and it wasn't even deliberate 
I wanted to propose to him at the uh, Piazza Navona, where the Fountain of the Four Rivers is, mm-hmm. and I wanted to propose to him there. But there were armed police everywhere because it was just after it was just after Christmas, and European capital cities are very much on high terror alert in, during the Christmas period. So there were armed police everywhere, and I thought this is not a romantic <laughs> environment. And so I just said, Oliver, let's go for a walk. And we just walked and walked and walked, and I was looking around, looking for the perfect place. So I decided that it had to be somewhere around it. And then, to my astonishment, I found myself on the exact bridge. It was a complete, it was a complete accident. Oh, wow. I found myself on the exact bridge um, that I stood on with my cousin uh, four years previously. So it was an extraordinary coincidence, really. Wow! And there it was. And obviously, as we know, he went on to say yes. Congratulations. He did. <laughs> Within a second, when you say he went on to say yes, sounds like he, he hesitated. He didn't hesitate. He was. That, that was Fast finger round. <laughs> yep, it done. <laughs> that, that would have been a nice touch. Thank you so much for taking a trip down to the White Wine Question Time cellar with me. If you want to hear more and you want to enjoy these episodes in full, you can scroll through our back catalogue or simply search for the guest names in the search bar. This week, you've been listening to Dr. Alex George, Adam Kay, and Paul Sinner. I'll be back on Friday with a brand new episode. Until then, thanks so much for your company. White Wine Question Time is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.